0: And so we're we'll be jumping into who wrote the book of love and really solving that, that, that one question, who wrote the book of love? And in the English language, we use love for a lot of different things. I personally, I love to hunt and to fish. I love that. Do I love to hunt and fish more than I love my wife and kids? No. But I, I love hunting and fishing more than I like, I like it right? And so Americans like certain things. We, we did a, a little bit of research on what Americans like and what Americans really love. One of the things that Americans really love are free refills, right? Yes. Americans love free refills. Like, yeah, like, man, if you can refill my drink, keep it coming. I love free refills, right? Come on, Americans love drama. Oh, man, they love drama, you might not have it in your life, but the housewives do, right? And so you love that, watching The Bachelor, all of those things. Uh, Americans love cats and dogs, right? They love dogs more, but, uh, but Americans love those things. And one thing that Americans do love, it is Super Bowl Sunday, and, uh, and one thing Americans do love is football. And particularly the Dallas Cowboys, is the Dallas Cowboys are, are named America's team, Right? And so, I really don't think that America loves the Dallas Cowboys. I really believe that America is infatuated and loves disappointment, as they as they are, as they are Dallas Cowboy fans, right? And so. Uh, so I'm sorry we, we, are, we are this side, we're 21 years this side of the millennium, but we haven't seen an appearance by uh, anyone from the, uh, from the Dallas Cowboy team. But that's okay. You keep believing America, keep loving them, because one day your love will, uh, will, will, will pay off, right? and so But we're going to be breaking that down. What that looks like is that the word we have for love really just kind of encompasses a lot of things. But in the New Testament, as Jesus will talk about love, Man, there, there were different meanings for that. In the Book of Love series, we're going to go through the different meanings of love. Today, we're going to be talking about agape love, the God love, an unconditional type of love. Then we're going to be talking about eros love, a romantic type of love. Going through storge love, which is, which is mankind and loving your neighbor. And the feeling you love about loving friends and what that looks like. And how, when we, when we study and we learn the author of the Book of Love, we'll begin to understand the different facets of love, and how he is and all of those things. Today we want to answer two big questions. The first thing we want to answer is how do we respond to a God who loves unconditionally? How do we respond to a God who loves unconditionally? And then how do we engage with that same God? to a God that loves in a way and in a manner that we can't even begin to understand or begin to fathom. A God who loves in a way that, that, that's just so beyond what the human mind can begin to comprehend. How do we respond to that? And then how do we engage with that same God? Our key scripture for the whole series is coming out of 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. We're going to read it, and it reads like this. Out of 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. It says, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. When, when the epistle John is writing this, he is known as, the, as the, 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 the guy of intimacy, the disciple of intimacy. John was known for that. And not intimacy in a weird kind of way, like a, like a Trader Joe's bag boy kind of way. Long hair, wearing sandals flowy, like, like Jesus robe dress thing. Not like that at all. I mean, we're talking about like, like, a, like the way brothers in arms know each other. An intimate way like that. When you've gone through battle with somebody, you know the ins and the outs of who they are. When John is writing this, you got to see who John is also. John is a man's man. John was boiled three times before he was exiled to the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. John isn't some sissy guy. I mean, we see John kind of being the beloved of Jesus and, and leaning into Jesus' chest and kind of being that sensitive guy also. But John was also a man's man. I mean to be bowled three times and to survive that and then to be exiled to the island of Patmos and then be going be going and live that too and then go set off to just go die peacefully somewhere. You've got to be some kind of a man. And that's who John was. And John's whole thing was concerned with us in our relationship with God. And when he's writing this text, he's writing this scripture, the church is in a spot right now where, where the, the Roman government and the, and the Jewish community, how they used to oversee each other or work in partnership, in symbiotic relationship, is now over and is dismantled. We're in the spot now where Nero is literally capturing Christians and burning them, setting them on fire for lights in his hanging gardens. And as John is writing this in First John... As he's writing this, he's correcting doctrine amongst his people in the first three chapters. And in chapter 4, he comes back. He says, hey, guys, look, if we're going to make it through this thing, if we're going to go through this, how we interact with each other and how we respond to what's happening has to come back and boil down to love. And he writes this statement, God is love. When we come back and we figure out who wrote the book of love, Who wrote the book of love? You can't have love without knowing the originator or the creator of it. Right? You have to come back and say, what is that? And John is writing here, God is love. It's not something that God does. It's not an attribute of God. He he is loving. No, he is love. He's not known for, for being a nice person. No, he is love. It's not an attribute of him. It's who he is. He can't help but be a loving God. And we see in John, in John chapter 1, in the book of John, when it says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We see that God is the Word. When you look at the book of love, it all points back to God. God is love. Jesus in Luke chapter 15 He's, he's, he's telling these stories, and he's got this audience with him in Jerusalem. And around here are, are, are Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day, and they're listening in as Jesus has, has gathered a crowd around him as he's telling these parables. In the beginning of Luke, it talks about who's in, in, in attendance and who's participating in what Jesus is talking about. And it says that in, in the text very clearly that who's listening are sinners and tax collectors. Jesus has a group of people that, that the Jewish r- religious leaders would say, why are you hanging out with these people? Why are, you, why are you with them? I mean, when we say sinners, we're talking about drunkards, wine-bibbers, as the Bible would call them, prostitutes, the down-and-outs, the castaways, the thrownaways. right? Come on, that, that's who Jesus is hanging out with. And then the tax collectors, whom the Jewish people absolutely despised. They were sellouts to them. See, the Jewish, the Jewish tax collectors were hired by the Romans, basically. And the Romans said, hey, man, if you collect 5% of taxes, we're fine. Anything you collect above that, that's your profit, man. That's what you get to keep. And so you had these crooked tax collectors going around and basically stealing from their own people to pay the Romans. And the Jews absolutely hated them. They were looked down upon. And that's who Jesus is talking to in Luke chapter 15. If you're reading in a paper Bible, your letters might be red. That doesn't mean that the, that the printer ran out of ink when they were printing your Bible. That means Jesus speaking. <clears throat> that's, that's what the red letters mean. That's, that's Jesus talking. And so Jesus begins to, to lay out these parables in Luke chapter 15. And he starts with this, with this parable about these sheep. And he talks about, he says, there, were, there was a shepherd guy who had a hundred sheep. He said, one of his sheep ran away. And we sang a song about it that Corey Asbury made so famous. <clears throat> the reckless love of God. And he says, if, 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 a, if a shepherd had a hundred sheep and one of them ran away, do you not think that the, that the shepherd would go after the one to bring him back? And people are, are listening to Jesus intently. And Jesus talks to him. He goes and he tells him another parable. And he tells him the story about this lady who's got, who's got these coins, and, and she loses one of the coins. And, and she, she tears her whole place apart looking for it. She cleans and sweeps everything in order to find this coin until she finds it. And Jesus is getting the attention of the people. He's going after them with, with things that they might have with finances, and he's drawing them in, and he's drawing them into what he's telling them. And when the religious leaders are looking on, and, and they're, they're looking at Jesus, I would imagine their eyes are blazing, burning fires into him. As they're, so, they're so mad that Jesus is breaking the social customs of the time. And they're sitting there, and they're talking. And in Luke chapter 15, verse 11 is where we're going to start reading. And Jesus begins to tell this other parable. This beautiful depiction of a father-son relationship. And in Luke chapter 15, it reads like this in verse 11. It says, Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of of, of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. It's the only time we see that, 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 that phrase listed out in Scripture, wild living. Look at the person next to you say, wild living. <laughs> Look at the other person next to you say, that person is wild living. Man, a crazy person, crazy people. But we see that there. So there's two sons as Jesus begins to tell this story. There's two sons, there's two brothers. And typically in Jewish custom what would happen was when, when the father would pass away, he would give two-thirds of the estate to the older son and he'd give one-third to the younger. And this younger boy comes to his dad, and he's like, Dad, look, man, you, you, you are not, basically, you're not dying fast enough. I need you gone. Dad, dad you're ruining my plans. Dad, I've got, I've got big plans. Dad, you need to give me half of your inheritance. He's basically telling his dad, Dad, you're better off dead to me. I need your money. And his dad finally gives it over to his son. And his son takes off to a distant country. I would imagine as Jesus is telling this story, these people are really connecting with what's happening here. They're really, they're really getting it. As he goes off to, to a foreign country, and he squanders his wealth in wild living. In wild living. Jesus begins right here, I believe, to kind of use these, these, bud wo- these buzzwords to get almost kind of controversial. Jesus is leading in here. He's getting the retention in this wild living. Scripture doesn't lay out what this young man got into. But you can imagine what it would be like as he probably set off to a country like that, that is like Las Vegas. And the different drinking and drugs and the sex that he got into with the prostitutes and all these different things. As he gets into, into all of this stuff, as Jesus says, would be wild living. A lot of us can, can, can picture what this was like. Maybe for you guys it was years ago. Maybe six, seven months ago. But you understand what this means when we say wild living. It rings a bell with you. You understand what that was. And the scripture would go on to say, as Jesus is talking, this young man finally spent all that he had. He had no more money. He, he had squandered it all. It's all gone. And a great famine hits the country in which he's residing. All of a sudden, there's major, major need. You've got this Jewish boy, Jesus is talking to Jewish people, talking about a Jewish family. You've got this Jewish boy who's living in a foreign country, he's not a citizen of that country. And he finds himself to be in dire need. So he goes out and he starts looking for work. And, he, and he's looking for work. He finally gets hired by a pig farmer. And to you that might not be no big deal, you're like, I used to work at a pig farm. It's awesome. It's great. Whatever, man. But for this kid, Jesus' audience, for Jesus to mention pigs to the Jewish people was the lowest of lows. Jesus is talking about a prominent Jewish family. If this family had enough money in order to give this boy a third of his inheritance of his entire estate to be able to give that over to his son. We're talking about a prominent Jewish family. And to see this boy's decline into where he's at now. Working for a pig farmer. That would be be like like somebody coming to us. I mean, Texans love their their barbecue, right? Come on. You smoke a brisket, man. It's great. We're not not cooking it in the microwave. We're not doing it in the oven. That's not real brisket, man. That's a roast, man, when we smoke a brisket, right? I mean, this is is like a kid saying, hey, man, I got a job at, at, at a barbecue shop that sells smoked tofu briskets. Like, what are you talking about, man? What are you doing? Shaping briskets in the bag and sticking it. It's nasty. What is going on here? And this boy is working for this pig farmer. I mean, the lowest of lows. And when Jesus talks about this, man, the people, uh, you got to understand what it meant to them. Jaws dropped to the floor. This boy has reached the end of his rope. He's hit rock bottom. As he goes on, he tells the story. He says, this boy is so hungry that he longs to eat what the pigs are eating. He envies the pigs. He envies where they're at. He desires to fill his stomach with the pods. He says, but no one gave him anything to eat. I don't know how long the boy worked there. I don't know how, how many days he went into work and out of work and leaving, leaving hungry. I'll tell you this, me being a Hispanic boy, I'm so thankful that I can eat pigs, right? Because I'll tell you this, man, one of the pigs would have choked on an apple and would have been drunken, around, uh, you know, drunken back to the back slowly. And I'll tell you, by that evening, there would have been a fire going. I'd be eating me chicharrones, right? Come on. I'd be eating me some carnitas, man. We have tacos al pastor, right? That's what would be happening at that pig farm. I'd be, we'd be slayed. I man. I'd be a little taco stand. It'd be great. But not for this Jewish kid. <clears throat> not happening. Not at all. He would reached rock bottom. I don't know how many days he went into work and out of work. I don't know how many days he clocked in and clocked out. But finally one day he comes to his senses. He has this this thing. He's like, even my dad's servants live better than this. Even even my dad's servants, they they do better than this. Their sleeping quarters are way better than what I've got. Their, Their work conditions are way better than where I'm at. Maybe I'll just go back to my dad, and I'll ask him, and I'll ask him, Dad, can I just come back and be a servant for you? Maybe it's better than what I'm living now. He says, you know what, I'm going to do it. And I think that whole moment while he's there working for that guy in this foreign country for this foreign man, I think pride is breaking off of that young man. I think humility is working its way into him. And he finally comes to a sense, and he says, you know what, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to my dad. Uh, I'm going, today's the day. Put his two weeks notice in and says, I'm out. See you later, man. And he heads off. Now, this isn't an easy journey. This isn't just going down the street. This is an arduous journey. He's in a distant country, as Jesus would say. Probably took a long time to save his money in order to get up to go on the trip. And we see right here in verse 20 where the boy leaves. it. So he got up and he went to his father. This is what it says in verse 20 of Luke chapter 15. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And this father and the son began to have our conversations. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Look how the father responds to that statement. Says, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine who was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate. As this began to happen, man, the son finally came to his senses. And the whole time he's out there, he's saying, my dad is so mad at me. My dad is so disappointed in me. He's going he's to think I'm a failure. All of these things are filling his mind. Why? Because he's looking at love from a human sense. And as Jesus is telling this story, he says that as the son was still a long way off, the father got up and he met the son where he was at. I would imagine every day when that, that father would get done with work, he'd go sit on the front porch and wait for his boy to come home. And in order to wait for his boy to come home, you have to know it's a given fact that that father was praying for a son every single day. Maybe today's the day my boy comes back. Maybe today's the day my boy comes back. Man, Lord, I pray wherever he's at, you're protecting him, you're blessing him. Whatever he's going through, Lord, I pray that there's a hedge of protection around him. Every day I'd imagine that father's praying for him. And finally to this day was the day his prayer was answered. As he sees his boy from a long way off, the father gets up and he goes and he meets the son at the point of his knee. He goes and he meets him right where he's at. And when the son looks at him it says, Dad, let me tell you something. I'm so sorry for what I've done for you. I'm not even worthy to be called your son. The father doesn't even respond to that statement. He doesn't even look at him and say, son, okay, great, man, bring me the receipts. We're going to get you reimbursed. Son, tell me what you've been doing and what you've been going through, and let's talk about that. The father doesn't even acknowledge when the son comes to him and says, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. He ignores that, and he says, hey, servants, my boy's back. We're having a party, man. Bring him a ring. Bring him a robe. Put some sandals on his feet. And he tells him, he says, dress him up. He's my boy. This is my son. This is years of me praying. Come on, this is months of me toiling for him. This is contending for his soul. This is now what I've been praying for. It's happened and it's here. And it's Jesus telling this beautiful story of the Father's love for each and every one of us. For each and every one of us. It doesn't matter what you've been through. It doesn't matter what you've gone through. It doesn't matter what distant country or land you've been in. The wild living you feel like you've squandered the best years of your life in. It does not matter. We see that the Father's love for us is an agape love, an unconditional kind of love, a love that has no strings attached, no clauses with it. There's nothing about it that would cancel if this, then that, none of it at all. He has an unconditional love for each and every one of us. And I love how the father doesn't even respond to the son when he tells him, no I'm no longer worthy to be, even be called your son. When the father puts that ring on his finger, it was a signet ring of the family, would have the family seal. When they would go shopping in the market, they would show that ring and say, it's on this account. It's on this account. When the father puts that ring back on his finger, I mean, he's telling him, son, you have access to every bit that I have access to. There's no limit to what you've got. There's there's no trial period to what I'm doing for you. Son, you have access to every bit of me. So how then do we respond to a love like this? A love that doesn't make any sense to us. A love that we can't even begin to comprehend it. To have a love without end. A love without any clauses or circumstances. How do we begin to respond to a love like that? I believe the first thing we have to do so we have to have an attitude of gratitude. I mean, we got to have a thankful heart. we got to begin to come in and say, all right, Lord, look, thank you. Thank you for what you've done for me. I'm so undeserving. Lord, you, you know what I've done. You don't care. You love me so much. You see the potential in me and not what I've done. Lord, you know what you've called me to be and not what I've done. Lord, we thank you so much for this. We see in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. It says, but God clearly shows and proves his own love for us by the fact that we were still, while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died on a chance. A chance that you might, that you might be in relationship with him. that That you might come in and say, all right, look, yeah, I'll accept you. I'll follow you. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll accept the gift of love that you give. I'll do that. Man, I know for me this year has just been a, a year of, of challenging me. I've been praying, Lord, at the, end, at the end of 2020, I said, Lord Jesus, what would you want from me? Well, what can I do? And I just felt myself going back to, to the moments where I, was, I, I felt like he was closer than ever. Like in the moments when, when I first got baptized in the Holy Spirit. And it was this moment I was by myself I was in my room, good Baptist boy, in, in the church four days a week. It was great. It was awesome. But to me, it was all just dead religion. And I'm in my room by myself, and I'm telling the Lord, I just come to this spot of gratitude. Lord, I'm so thankful that I'm not where I was, but that where I'm at right now. Lord, and I know that, there, that you've got more for me, and I know I'm not all the way there, but I'm so thankful you didn't leave me where I was but that you, you've, you've guided me, you've brought me, and you've called me to where I'm at. Jesus, thank you so much. And he's challenged me this year. He says, man, stop telling stories and start living moments. I was like, what does that even mean, Lord? <laughs> he says, man, don't tell the stories of the glory days. I want you to make glory days right now. I said, all right, Jesus, we got to be thankful for that. Second thing we got to do is this right here. Is we got to be to love what he loves. How do we respond to a guy that loves unconditionally? Love what he loves. Man, a marriage would not work if you only had your wife do what you'd like to do. It would be terrible. She'd be like, you're the worst husband ever. I hate this, right? But it's a give and take. It's a compromise, right? And we got to begin to love what he loves. So what does God love? What does God love? Well, in John chapter 3, verse 16, we figure it out. It reads like this, for God so loved the world. It's you and me. That's each and every one of us. That's your neighbor that you don't like. That's Larry and accounting, who you hate. Right? It's all those things, right? That's who he died for. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We see that God's most prized possession from the beginning of it all, going all the way back to Genesis when Adam and Eve were in the garden separated from God. Man, that it enacted a thing where God is trying to get back to his people, his creation, the thing he loves the most. And in John chapter 3, verse 16, we see that God figured out a plan. That was a sacrifice, his only son. Why? Because he loves the world so much. Come on, if we're going to respond to this God, then we got to love what he loves. I live by this small little adage. It's if I know a little bit about everything, I can talk to anybody about anything. So I'll go and I'll sit. Like I'm getting get my tires changed, a discount tire. I, I love, like I said, hunting and fishing. man. And I'll be wanting to read those magazines. But you know what? I'm going to read Road and Track right now. And I'll read the highlights, just the highlights, like the BMW M3 beat the Audi A8. You know, I was like, all right, great. I know that. Log that in the brain, right? This one day we're, we're on an airplane. Me and Pastor Adam are, are going somewhere. He's speaking somewhere, and I'm hanging out with him. And I sit next to this guy, and I get stuck in the middle seat. And this guy's like a big dude. He's like a real big guy. And so I'm like all squished, you know. And I was like, dude, this is not the best, Pastor. I'm screwed over. And so it, just, it was just terrible, right? Thank God we didn't have to wear masks this. This is pre-pandemic, right? And so I look over, and the guy's reading a motorcycle magazine. And I look at him, I open my big mouth, and I said, did you, did you know that the, uh, that the Harley, you know, sportsster beat out the whatever, whatever? And he's like, yeah, I read that article. And we start talking to this guy, right? And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about, sir, but I'm just shaking my head. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Very interesting, right? I have no idea what he's talking about. 30 minutes into the flight, this guy's weeping and crying because he's leaving his mistress in Dallas and going back to his wife in Washington where we're going. And because I knew a little bit about this, this Harley Davidson motorcycle beating whatever it beat out, was an open door to begin to minister to this guy to where he was at. See, when we begin to love what he loves, that's a proper response for the unconditional love that he has for us. Last thing is this right here, by laying our lives down for his service, how should we respond? By laying our lives down for his service. Saying that all we are is His. If he gave his life for us, then the least I can do is live my life for him. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not my life, it's his. I've been crucified with Christ. That's it, man. My, the, the life I live is glorifying him. In John chapter 14, 15, it says, If you love me, then you keep my commandments. So, Jesus said, He says, if you love me, then you'll keep my commandments. Come on, man, if we do that, we got to be laying down our lives for Him. A proper response for an unconditional love from a God that extends it beyond anything that we can do is that we got to be laying down our lives for His service. We see that beautiful depiction of what Jesus laid out of the Father and the Son, representing what it would be for us and what it is for Him. This is why we were still a long way off. I love the picture that the father gets up and he goes after his son. He doesn't even ask, like, where you been? What you've been doing? Why do you smell like pigs? What is wrong with you? Asking none of those questions. He loves him and he embraces him. I'd be asking all sorts of questions. I'm like, where were you at? What country did you go to? What was it like? What was the weather like? What did you eat? What did you drink? All of those things. I'd be asking all that stuff, not this guy. I mean, he had no, no concern about that at all. All he cared about was the condition of his son's heart and reestablishing him back as family. So then how do we engage with a God who loves us unconditionally? How do we engage with that? How do we begin to interact with a God that loves us unconditionally? The first one is this right here is engage him with confidence you got to engage him with confidence. We'll come to him and say, Lord, look, you don't know what I've been through. Lord, I'm so sorry. Lord, if you might, if you could, you you know, we'll come to him. If you've ever seen Planet of the Apes when a a monkey comes to him like that, with his hand all up like that, that's the way I picture sometimes we come to God. like, Lord, Caesar, please, right? And so I'm like, no, Lord, man, he says, come to me with confidence. Approach me boldly. Don't be lowly. Don't be scared. Don't be timid. But come to me with confidence. My kids bust up in my room. They did it this morning. Threw the door open, boom. And my son does a suplex into the bed, right, just lays himself out. Oh, 85 pounds of him. Bam. And where he lands, who knows, right? And so one day he got a bloody nose, and he was all mad at me. He's like, Dad, you hurt my face. And I was like, I hurt your face. You slammed your face in the back of my head, and it's my fault, right? And I was like, no, sir. But they come running in. Dad, what do you need? Dad, 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 dad. Whatever. It doesn't matter. They engage with confidence. Why? Because I'm dad. I, I, I'm da- they know I love them. I'm dad. It's the same way we need to be engaging the father. It's with confidence. Look at what it says right here in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12. It says, in him and through faith, in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Man, we need to be approaching God in confidence. We need to be engaging him in confidence. Knowing that he loves us unconditionally. Knowing there's nothing separates us from him. The second thing is this right here and how do we engage a God who loves unconditionally? Engage him knowing you don't have to earn his love. You don't have to earn his love. He he's not looking for you to impress him in your prayers. You know he's not trying he's not trying to get you to use your big fancy words in prayers. He just wants to talk to you. He just wants to be with you. He's not he's not trying to say all right Lord look I, I understand uh, eschatology a little bit better. Let's talk about it. No, he 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 wants to know you. He wants to know you. You don't have to earn his love. It's not a works-based mentality. You don't have to earn it. It's already there. In Ephesians 2, verse 8, it says, For it is grace, it is grace by which you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's a gift. It's been given to you. You don't have to earn it. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more. He loves you unconditionally as it is. There's nothing you have to do in order to get him to love you more. There was a boss I had that, he was, he was a terrible boss, and I didn't know he was a terrible boss, so I got to run a good boss, right? And so he, he was horrible. It was, and everything you did, whoever, whoever got, he had, he had like a pecking order of his favorites, and he would make everybody else feel bad by, by giving that one praise. He'd say, well, well Bill turned in a great report. All your other reports are terrible. Bill turned into great report. I was like, what the heck? So I found myself trying to, to earn this guy's love, to try to, try to get the praise that, that I needed from him, to feel like I was doing a good job. And so I had no idea that that began to bleed into my spiritual life and my life as a husband, as I began to try to earn by works and doing this and that. And it wasn't about relationship. It was all about works. It was all about doing. It was all about becoming. It was all about trying to outdo and outbe. And it's not that at all when it comes to our relationship with God. There's nothing you can do to earn more of his love. Nothing you can do to earn more of his love. Just being you. Just breathing. Just being. Loving him. Going after him. That's all he requires for us to learn. To earn every bit of his love. to, To gain. To have every bit of his love. You don't have to earn it. It's already there. And the last thing is this right here, how do we engage a God who loves unconditionally? It's engage him knowing that your failures don't disqualify you. That your failures don't put you at arm's length away from him. That what you've done in the past doesn't define you. Don't let your failures define your future. Don't let what you've done in the past dictate what else you've done. Can you imagine if that son would have said, you know what, man, my dad, there's no way my dad will ever accept me. There's no way he'll ever take me. I, I, I've shamed a family name by working for a pig farmer. That's it. Lord, it's not happening. It's not going to happen. And because of that, he says, you know what? Never going back home. Not doing it. Not going back. I don't want to face that. I know he's mad at me. You know he's angry at me. I know he's this. I know he's that. Don't let your failures disqualify you. They don't. They don't. He doesn't care. He loves you unconditionally. Now, are there real consequences sometimes for the things that we do? Absolutely. But that doesn't separate you from God's love. That doesn't disqualify you from being a son or a daughter of the Most High. That doesn't dictate how much love he has for you. He doesn't say, hey, man, I really love, oh, my God, I really love the continent of Africa right now. North America, you're on your own. I don't, I don't know what's going on. That's not it at all. He's coming and he's saying, hey, I love you unconditionally. Your failures don't disqualify you. They don't separate you from me. It's so the exact opposite. He said, man, I love you so much, even more. Just come back to me. In Romans chapter 8, verse 39, it says, no height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the unlimited love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing that can separate you from God's love. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. He loves you so much much. This thing that we have sometimes where God is an angry God, he's mad, he's disappointed, all of these things, that's a lie from the enemy. As we see as Jesus telling the story, the parable to the audience of sinners and tax collectors, people that are really connecting with what's going on here. We see that the father goes and meets him. He's been praying for his son. That's the same thing the father's doing for us. He's praying for us, He desires us. He's not mad at you. He's not disappointed at you. He's patiently awaiting your return home, moving heaven and earth to get you back, to earn you back. Why? Because he prepaid for you. He prepaid for you. He sent his only son, Jesus, to hang and die on a cross for you, resurrecting after three days, defeating sin, death, and the grave. And when he ascends to heaven, he said, I'm going to the Father so that I might pray for you. He says, I'm not mad at you. I'm not disappointed. Man, I love you so much. I love you so much in a way that you can't even begin to understand. As we go through this book of love, we understand the different loves. We have to have this love, the agape love, as a foundation on which everything else is built upon. Knowing that his love for us is unwavering, is unquestionable, and it cannot be shaken because God is love. And everything else is built upon that foundation, that God is love. Love was created by him. Love is him. He is love. As we line out a biblical worldview of what love is, there's no way you can do that without having first this understanding of this agape love, an unconditional love that loves us in the midst of our pain, that loves us beyond our failures, and that doesn't stop coming after us until he sees that relationship restored back to him.